Hey, just a note before we get to the show. We've been doing this since 2016, and we think it's time for us to take it to the next level. So we're going to be doing a live Edible Alpha here in Madison on April 1st. And I'm really excited because we're going to be taping interviews live. Paul Willis, the founder of Nyman Ranch Meats, is coming. The founder of Iroquois Valley Farmland REIT, Dave Miller is coming. We're going to also be having some young up-and-coming entrepreneurs, Mike Costello and Amy Dawson from Lost Creek Farm. There are going to be lots of ways to join us. One way is coming on an airplane and joining the live event. Another way is in the future, the podcast interviews that we tape live, we're going to have on our show. And we're also going to make it possible to do viewing parties. So if you want to get a bunch of people together and watch all of this, you're going to be able to do that around the country. If you're interested in doing any of that, uh, reach out to the Food Finance Institute or Edible Alpha, get in contact with us and we'll get back to you and help you organize your event. And now on to our show. Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Well, hey, thanks for coming down to visit with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Tara. This is so great. Um, Why don't we start by just having you introduce yourself and your company? Yeah, my name is Sasha Dondrell, and I'm the founder of Safi Foods, which actually started out as a food service brand where I was selling to Michelin star restaurants, James Beard awarded chefs, and the products were specifically oils and vinegars, like premium extra virgin olive oil, um, white balsamic, dark balsamic. And then through one of my distributors, I was introduced to um, a retail bulk buyer. And so I started selling in the bulk liquid category. Yeah. So where, how did you even get into this? Like way back when, before Um, you even had a company? Yeah. So this is a long story, but I'll try to cut it as short as possible. When I graduated, I moved to Chile and Mm -hmm. um, I would you know, apply to any anybody that I had contact with. Before that, I was interning at the Chilean trade office uh-huh. in Chicago. And so I had met with these companies that were trying to start exporting their food products to the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And one of them hired me, and it was an olive oil farm. Oh. So yeah, so I started working with this olive oil farm, and I was trying to help them expand to the United States in mm-hmm. while I was in Santiago. And what I learned was that they were competing with all of these fake olive oils. Right. Right. So so I've been hearing a bit about that. Like, it's really lamp oil kind of stuff that's coming from Europe, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's, um, it's run by the Italian mafia, believe mm. it or not. Yeah. And they basically dilute extra virgin olive oil with lower grades of oil. Some of them are even like when they've been chemically tested, unfit for human consumption. Oh no. Yeah, so I, um, yeah, I had no idea about any of this (laughs) with olive oil, right? And then I started, um, I tasted your olive oil. I'm like, wow, this is so different. Like, I can't believe how different it is. So. So this was, when was this that that you were doing this in Chile? 
in Chile, it was around like 2011, 2012. Okay. All right. So even even back then, all the adulterated olive oil was coming into the U.S. Yeah. And, and, and it was really hard for them, I'm assuming, for that farm, right? Yeah. That's... There were a couple of things I learned working with that farm. One was that, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of olive oil companies around the world were competing and even like going out of business because they couldn't compete with these, these, um, you know, fake prices, of, right. you know, buy one, get one free for $4 a bottle. Right. Um, you just, you can't even produce extra virgin olive oil for that cost. Mm-hmm. And so um, the other thing I learned was that everyone wants to be in the U.S. market, but mm-hmm. none of these companies that I worked with in South America or in Europe had a real understanding of how much money it would actually cost. So three years into us trying to export to the United States, um, the company I was working with was like, look, we can't really fund this anymore. And so that's what made me I had already had customers. I was basically running the whole operation in the United States, and um, I decided to start uh, doing it by myself. Cool, cool. Yeah, sometimes you know, sometimes being an entrepreneur is is kind of falls in your lap, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Had yeah. you ever thought about having your own company before that, or was- so? Both of my parents were entrepreneurs. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so as much as I beat them up growing up about how, you know, they Mm. were the worst, they did so much um, throughout my childhood to teach me, like, real lessons about entrepreneurship that it's stressful almost all the time. Mm -hmm. Every time you go on vacation, something terrible will happen. (laughs) (laughs) Ergo, why you were frustrated when you were a kid, right? Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, you don't just make money really quickly. Right. So they... So what kind of entrepreneurs were they? What did they do? They had small businesses in Indianapolis. Okay. So my mom started like a classifieds paper, think uh-huh. Craigslist, but the print form. Oh, God, how funny. Yeah. Years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Way back in the day. Uh-huh. And it was really successful, so successful that my dad quit his job as an aeronautical engineer. Wow. And started helping her. Wow. And now she runs a, an Aveda salon in Indianapolis, which uh-huh. is super successful yeah. as well. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? I do think there's something to this... Um, growing up with with entrepreneurs about being an entrepreneur. My dad had his own architecture firm and my grandfather had his own company. And and so I too was around people who were doing entrepreneurial things. And, you know, it makes it less of a leap, I think, you know, to think, wow, I'm not going to get a steady paycheck every day, you know? Right. Yeah. But it seems like you kind of, you had a lot of experience took you a little while before you decided to make the entrepreneurial jump. Yeah, yeah. No, I had a lot of business experience before I did it. And, you know, for me, that was really, it was really a good thing because it enabled me to be an entrepreneur at a much higher level than I could have, right? I mean, I, I, I built a $14 million plan to get started in a business. Like, you don't really do that unless you've had experience before. So, yeah. So, okay. So you're now, you made the decision to start 
the business. And did you ever think you were going to have like your own brand in bottles, or how did how did how did this whole thing start with um, food service? I guess it yeah. sounds like. So I learned how much it. You know, people told me how much it costed to start a retail brand. Right. And I then I I and you listened, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Because most people, you tell them that, and they're like, "Oh no, that won't. It won't cost that much." And then it ends up costing that much. Such a good point. I think that yeah. I wish I had listened more to people telling yeah. me stuff in the past. Mm-hmm. And that's the one piece of advice I would give to young entrepreneurs. But um, I also happened to be connected to someone who knew someone that owned a big produce distribution company Mm. in Indianapolis. Right. He was a friend of my dad's friend. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just went into his office and talked to him a little bit. And he was like, yeah, like, I can introduce you to the buyer um, at Piazza Produce, which Mm -hmm. is a phenomenal distributor. And um, they were like... You know, uh, I I was trying to sell them a full truckload of olive oil, uh-huh. and they were like, "How about we start with a pallet? We oh, start with a pallet." And you're like, "Oh no, what am I going to do with the rest of this right. truckload?" Right. Then I had to learn about warehousing, like mm-hmm. you know, three PL and and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what got me started in food service, and so- food service is a way cheaper and easier way. Mm-hmm. The sales grow much slower. But it's slow and steady, and gives you gave me a really good foundation. Nice. So, what kind of um, restaurant is it? Restaurants predominantly. That yeah. So, what kind of restaurants um, use your olive oil? So, there's Michelin star restaurants in um, D.C., Chicago that use it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of catering companies. Uh, mm. The other um, customer that is pretty big is corporate catering, where mm-hmm. they really are treating their employees well and focusing on their wellness right so a lot of health insurance um, interesting pharmaceutical companies Mm -hmm. um but yeah people that care about the quality i mean my price is definitely not the most expensive it's right in the middle Mm, interesting so how how do you manage to do that because and i get two questions how do you manage to do that and do most people have the reaction i do that wow this oil is so different yeah, they do. They really do. And that's what we have tried to work on with like the marketing is, you know, just do the Pepsi Coke challenge. Yeah, kinda, right, right. And take what you have in your cabinet and smell it and taste it and take ours and smell it and taste that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as, you know, a quick rule of thumb, if it smells like varnish, plastic, it's fake olive oil. Mm-hmm. If it tastes rancid, it's fake olive oil, like old stale peanuts is how I describe it. But it should smell like a garden, like fresh cut grass mm. and green and herbaceous. But the number one note you're looking for is fresh cut grass. Interesting. Yep. So um, fresh yeah. cut grass. Yeah. It, yours, um, to me, just fe- it tastes cleaner somehow. I don't know how to describe that, but it's just, yeah, it, it's really a different flavor. And, and it, and when you cook with it or or like I put it on salad now and I'm like, I could just eat salad with just this olive oil on it. Like I don't need to put anything on it. It's so good, right? Right. It's, and those people that go to like Europe and mm-hmm. try these dishes for like three euro of just like tomatoes and olive oil and salt. And right. Like, Why don't we have this in the United States? 
And it's because our tomatoes here, you know, are from a month ago and taste like plastic. Right. The olive oil is, you know, rancid. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. All right. So, so places that really care about quality, um, there, there, maybe it's a wellness thing too with some of your products. So, so that's how you got started. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you import from Chile, right? Yep. Chile and Spain. And Spain. Okay. So, what are you getting from Spain? Um, the vinegars. Okay. And then the olive oil is harvested in May in Chile mm-hmm. and in October in Spain. I see. So it's fresh year-round. Extra virgin anything is basically cold-pressed juice, Mm -hmm. but then the water and the oil are separated, and then you get just the oil. So you want it to be as fresh as possible. Oh, that's probably another problem with the other olive oil. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So freshness matters. Interesting. I before this white balsamic, I've never had. I've never had it or seen it before. Mm-hmm. Is that um, that's a uh, Spanish thing? Um, no. So actually, or is that Italian? It, yeah. So balsamic typically comes from Italy, from right. Modena. Right. Right. And so, um, I when we kind of like describe ours, it's like a Spanish version of balsamic. Mm, but mm-hmm. it's made from white wine grapes instead oh. of red wine grapes. So ours is made from Moscatel grapes. Oh, okay. Interesting. Give it that, you know, that sweetness. But yeah. a lot of companies add caramel coloring and sugar to their balsamic mm. to make them sweeter and taste more like higher quality. Mm-hmm. Whereas ours are 100% grapes. Wow. Okay. Well, that's different too. Yeah. No wonder they taste so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so you have these these food service channel. Um, then you went into retail. So let's talk about that journey. So that was again like it just sort of fell into my lap. I mean, I was working with one of my distributors, and their salesperson introduced me to a bulk buyer at mm-hmm. a grocery chain. And I was able to offer them a really high quality olive oil for about the same price as what they were paying. And they did the same thing when they tasted it side yeah, by side. They yeah. were just like, oh my gosh, like this is night and day. Mm-hmm. And so then I ended up supplying them all of their bulk liquid section. And I, you know, over time, I realized there were a lot of problems that could be addressed relatively easily, um, including the you know sanitizing each of the dispensers in the bulk section mm-hmm. was a huge problem yeah i bet so i it's such an interesting thing right because you go to the bulk section so i'm i'm this hippie co-op shopper right go to the bulk section have done this forever but the liquid section was always a bit intimidating and i always thought like look at uh i'm not so sure about that right Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of times there's no information about the products. The dispensers themselves are, they're they're across the board, but often they're these stainless steel, what they call fusties, which are these kind of round shaped um, Italian old world uh, dispensers that they just, you know, take a big plastic jug of olive oil or vinegar and dump it in there mm-hmm. and it gets oxidized. If you're using a vinegar with mother, it um, grows, the mother grows and becomes chunky. Oh. And then the um, maple syrup actually gets moldy. Oh. 
So there's all these problems with that. And so what I did is put them in basically a wine bag. Mm. So it prevents any oxidation from happening. And it also, these wine bags are recyclable. You can just, um, after it it empties out, you just swap it for a new one Mm -hmm. in these dispensers. Mm -hmm. And so instead of using a big plastic jug, you're using these bags that, um, you know, there, you don't have to clean or sanitize the dispensers at all. Mm-hmm. The product itself is protected, and the stores save a lot on labor. Right, right. Wow. So, so behind the scenes, it's really transformational, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then like in front of the consumer, we've designed these really beautiful round elegant dispensers that offer more information about the products, Mm -hmm. but really convey the quality of the products inside. And um, we've developed signage to make it a little bit less intimidating for people to use them. Mm -hmm. But a big part of our business model and, um, you know, the cost of our marketing is doing demos and mm-hmm. teaching customers how to use these dispensers. Sure. So one brand, I don't know if you're, you must be familiar with Frontier Spices. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they did this in the spice category. Mm, right. Years ago. Years yeah, ago. Yeah. And now they're in places like Festival. Right. Where people are filling up their own, you know, jars mm-hmm. of spices and... Well, I find it interesting because when I was sort of coming of age, so this would have been early 80s, um, the sort of environmentalist sort of folks like me were doing the zero packaging thing. Like we were not excited about buying products with a lot of packaging. And then that kind of like, I don't know, waned a little bit, I would Mm -hmm. say, over the years. And now it's coming back. The zero waste packaging thing is coming back. And do you see that in consumers' reaction to the bulk section? Oh, 100%. It's just that, you know, the average consumer wants to have a positive impact on the environment or even like a positive social impact. Mm -hmm. But you have to figure out a way that makes it easy Mm -hmm. and seamless. And so if requiring customers to always you know remember to bring their jars back and weigh them the easier you can make that the better and that's why the i think the bag tax in chicago was phenomenal it wasn't super expensive Mm -hmm. but every time you checked out and they were like okay it's six cents i think that's how much it was it it made you think like oh my gosh i'm like you know uh adding to the plastic ocean or you know Mm -hmm. it just makes you think but um we have to make it as easy as possible for consumers to to have a positive impact sure absolutely so your you started out with um with a container and this is the container you use right now right that that is beautiful compared to like just aesthetically beautiful right um and these um um, recyclable bags go in and have all those benefits in the background. Um, when now people now you're working with retailers to kind of help them re- reimagine their bulk liquid section, right? Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's huge. Yeah, and it's tough too because, like you said, um, there was a phase where a lot of retailers were trying it mm-hmm. um, in the past. You know, like. A lot of the buyers that I'm reaching out to are like, look, we've tried that. It didn't work for us. 
and we're not going to try it again. And right. So that's one of my biggest challenges is like, mm-hmm. this is how different we are. We No one ever promoted, no one ever talked to your customers about how to use this section or what it even was. The number one thing I see in the bulk liquid sections that before we come in is people just walk right by them and don't even know they exist. Mm -hmm. And if they do, they're so ugly, they just choose to ignore them. Right, because you're (laughs) kind of looking at it going, oh, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's also um, an idea that it's not as high quality somehow, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, people think bulk means like the cheapest possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I even think about when I started using Bulk Dry, I specifically remember the day I went to Whole Foods and I saw someone else filling up a bag. And I was like, let me see what they're doing. But I had to watch people and observe them before I really understood. Mm -hmm. You know, and it takes, I don't know, three times of doing it before Mm -hmm. you're like, okay, now I know, fill this up, weigh it, print out the sticker, and then I can check out. Right, right, right. So, um... So your so you had you had these um, your the containers you're starting with. Now you are looking at at a kind of a reimagining of them. Mm-hmm. Um, what is motivating that? The dispensers themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so well, I know we're going to have several different prototypes. So mm-hmm. the first one was just to kind of like iron out the kinks. Mm-hmm. So I designed maybe. Um, I think I I produced 50 or 75 dispensers and I gave them away free to stores that would use the product. Mm -hmm. And we learned a lot. One, um, they still weren't as uh, aesthetically pleasing as we wanted. Mm -hmm. And two, there there were a couple other um, kind of mechanical things we wanted to adjust. Mm -hmm. We also decided to add a sight gauge on the outside, which Mm. is sort of like... um, there are like tea kettles and stuff that have it where you can see the liquid inside because um, a lot of people want to be able to see what they're buying. Mm-hmm. In addition, that helped with um, employees so they know when to change them out. Right. Yep. But um, I I think there will be more versions in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to show the growth first before we invest in, in the next version of dispensers. But with any... Um, industrial design or mechanical engineering it's a long process in many iterations yeah yeah isn't that crazy yeah yeah and you get and you get these ideas in your head and the industrial designers like yeah I think this will work and then you take it out and it doesn't work exactly (laughs) like consumers don't understand it right yeah isn't that crazy it is yeah it's so interesting learning about that field I bet it is I bet it is so um so anyway, that the bulk section, um, I, I mean, because I have always been a bulk section shopper. Now I go there. There's way more people mm-hmm. there. I'm not like the only person digging in these bins anymore. So that's got to be good for your business. Yeah. And the other thing that's phenomenal is sometimes or very often we will go to the bulk liquid section, you know, during a demo mm-hmm. and we'll see kids bringing in their parents Oh, interesting. Like 12-year-old, 13-year-old. I mean, everyone knows Greta Thunberg, who has just had a huge impact on awareness for Mm -hmm. climate change. And 
that generation is actually scared because they know when mm-hmm. they grow up, like right. a lot of our planet could be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't think it's a, a question of whether or not whether or not it'll be successful, but a question of when. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, so there's every, each generation is becoming more and more aware of their impact mm-hmm. and that, you know, just not asking for a straw at restaurants. Mm-hmm. If everyone or, you know, a small percentage of the population did that, it could have a huge impact on our oceans. Right, right. And I think you you were sharing with me that you and are you have a program with your bottles too, the bottles for retail. Yep. Yeah. So we have one of the issues with um, people bringing in their own jars is that they mm-hmm. have different weights. Right. So our you know our solution is to offer a bottle that you can buy it has like kind of a graduated sort of like a baby bottle how you can so you can see how many ounces you're filling up Mm -hmm. and then there's a guide that will tell you you know if you fill up two ounces it'll be approximately you know three dollars and if you fill up um double that it'll be six dollars etc and so that makes it really easy for consumers to be like okay so if i fill up a full bottle it'll be nine dollars and my olive oil that i normally buy is ten dollars so i'm you know saving money Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and it also makes it easier because then for the employees at the store there's just one tear button they have to press Mm. it's not that they have to enter the weight of the bottle every single time a customer checks out Right, right. Because I I have always wondered about that. Like, how did they, how did they handle that at the register, right? Um, and I I buy, you know, your bulk olive oil now all the time because I love your olive oil. And um, and I've gotten to the point where I have like two bottles. So I have one bottle that's at home, and then one bottle that I take, you know, the empty one I take to the store. If that oh, makes sense, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and it already has the 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 what is it PLU number the yeah. number for the store on oh, it and the tears on it and so then I don't have to worry about it but but I'm thinking this is the kind of thing that you know to your point thinking of ways to make it easy for people yeah yeah and the the bottles that we've designed have a space for the PLU so if you write it with a permanent marker you can reuse that but nice. you can also use rubbing alcohol to wipe it off mm, mm-hmm. and then they last through the dishwasher and everything nice so yeah so we definitely you know are, are doing our best to make it as easy as possible possible for consumers mm-hmm. um, the other thing that I was telling you about that we're launching is we are partnering with local restaurants and square wine which mm-hmm. is the the Madison based uh, wine shop on the square and we sanitize and recycle their bottles and refill them with our products mm. so taking all the legwork out of it for consumers right and offering a really high quality product for a reasonable price online mm-hmm. nice yeah so let's talk about online because i um um so in my household i'm on a anti-inflammatory diet right now which means i cook with olive oil all the time i use a lot of olive oil and so i've been looking at the dispenser that you have in stores going I could put that dispenser in my in my pantry because I actually have a pretty big pantry I would love to do that and then I could just order olive oil online I'd get the bags from you so so um 
you know, have you been thinking about that? And and you've yeah. been thinking about that and the wine bottle thing, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. And actually, mm-hmm. what, you know, kind of part of the idea with the wine bottle is customers that wanted to use that as their, you know, their bottle that they use while they're cooking, then um, they could buy the big dispensers for mm-hmm. their house. Mm-hmm. Um, but we right now are just investing in the beta testing yeah. of um, how we're going to reach our target consumer online. Mm-hmm. Because Facebook and Instagram um, ads are, you, you can just waste a lot of money really, sure. really quickly by not targeting the right customer. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and it, it's sort of pictures of olive oil. Like I'm, I'm trying to imagine like your marketing challenge. It's sort of an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there's so many brands out there that offer a high quality olive oil mm-hmm. they're usually much more expensive than ours because mm-hmm. um, they have this beautiful bottle that's like you know 45 dollars for you know uh 375 milliliters sure which is half a wine bottle whereas ours we sell for about 30 dollars mm-hmm. and for a full wine bottle for sure. double double that and um a lot of the messaging is the same mm-hmm. it, you know it's this luxurious experience whereas we want to be more of the everyday premium olive oil Mm -hmm. but yeah and you're also the zero waste thing i mean on people are going online trying to figure out the zero waste thing too yes that is very very true Mm -hmm. and you know that's another thing we're beta testing is is which message speaks or resonates with consumers more is it this premium product Mm -hmm. or is it the sustainability aspect. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a little bit of both. Sure. But, you know, which message do we push more? Right. It's such an interesting thing about messaging because often the people that I work with are have brands that are like Tara's way and that there are lots of layers to the attributes, right? So it's, you know, family farm, source from family farms. And and in our case, it was, we had a green manufacturing plan and, and it was for the health and wellness consumer and it was a short ingredient deck and, 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 right? And you can't right. talk about all of it at the same time. It's too much. Right. Yeah. But it's interesting when we did Tara's Way, when we launched, we we were um, positioning around health and wellness because there wasn't a health and wellness brand of whey protein, and that's not true anymore. So now the brand is positioned more around the sustainability, actually, and the and the traceable to family farms thing. Interesting. Yeah. So you go to the website now, you see a side of a barn, like a white barn. You used to see a woman doing, you know, yoga on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a different positioning. And it will be interesting for you as you launch this to figure out, you know, who your target consumer really is and yeah. how to get to them. Yeah. And that's one thing that you can use Facebook and Instagram a lot for is um, you can get a lot of information and you can target people very specifically, um, you know, based on income, geography, but even more specifically, like their likes, you know, brands they follow and um, stuff like that. So that's something we're kind of just now learning. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I think I think, you know, I've seen a lot of people waste a lot of money, honestly, not trying to figure out the targeting on on social media and and Amazon or something. 
Yeah. yeah. And that's one thing I think I did a lot of um, early on is I just, you know, I saw an opportunity and I like, you know, went for it. I put it on Amazon, put it, you know, um, even got into retail stores with a- without actually doing the research. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm, you know, five years into the business, I understand that like if you just plan and spend money early on, you can save a ton of money. In yeah, the isn't that crazy? And these are things that, um, you know, you already knew. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's one of the benefits of, you know, being in the industry for a while and understanding the industry, whereas a lot of us entrepreneurs just, you know, dive right in and we we spend a lot of money before we, we learn, <laughs> learn these lessons. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's definitely, you know, and, and when we look at like um, people who apply to pitch events and we, we, you know, look at the track record of companies and stuff, pre- oh, time and time again, companies that have at least one person in a senior role in it who had some industry experience, they grow faster, right? right? They just do because people know how things work. Yep. Yeah. No, that's a, it's a really, really good point. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of lessons I wish I had learned earlier on. Um, you know, like working with KEHI or UNFI, if, um, if you don't have someone that understands how to manage them, you can lose a lot of money. I got into Meyer actually, um, early on and I was selling, bottles that the farm in Chile produced. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was getting checks for 10 cents, 20 cents on the dollar. Oh. And I I mean, they almost put me out of business. Mm-hmm. And everyone before that told me, hey, they're really difficult mm-hmm. for small brands to work with. You really need to reach a certain point. But, you know, me, like a lot of un- other naive entrepreneurs, were like, I'll figure it out. I'll be fine. But I, I had to fire them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And isn't that crazy? And that's such a hard thing in a startup to fire a big customer. It's like, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And they're go they're and that's kind of but that launched you into this um, the bulk section and the journey you're on right now, which in view of the whole zero waste and lower packaging and things that people are starting to really focus on, it's like you're there at a real opportune time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kind of instead of slotting fees, we which you have to mm-hmm. pay to get on the shelves, um, you know, we basically give away our dispensers for free, which are pretty expensive right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other struggle is that we're not asking for space on a shelf. A lot of times we're asking for someone to create a category. Yeah, that wasn't there that before. That wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. Or that they got rid of because it wasn't profitable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's it's a big big struggle, but mm-hmm. but it's fun trying to navigate and and also when you start, if if you're able to show the analytics mm-hmm. and you know the the key performance indicators, um, that can be very compelling for mm-hmm. a category manager. Right, right. So it sounds like your analytics are good. Yeah. So the analytics are good. Um, you know, right now our our testing is just with co-ops, but we are getting ready to um, launch with a couple stores of one of our bigger retailers. Nice. And so those analytics, I think, will be much more important for getting into medium-sized grocery chains. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of the 2020 push. Cool. 
Cool. And in the meantime, you still do your food service business, right? Yeah. In the food service business, you know, we built it up and we have great relationships with our distributors. And it's, you know, obviously we we still work closely with them. But a lot of that is just like, you know, residual sales. I think another interesting thing to me about your business is how international the sourcing side is, right? So when you bring in olive oil, are you bringing a whole container in? Yeah, so we bring a full 40-foot container in, mm-hmm. um, which logistically, it, it also means that I have to find a warehouse sure. with a loading dock. Yep. And, um, you know, there's a lot of complications with that. But um, because I'm a young brand, I can't, you know, afford a letter of credit. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a handshake deal. Like, I'll give you 50% prepaid, mm-hmm. which is two months before I see the product. Right. And then as soon as I receive it, before I even start packaging it, I pay the other, you know, 40000 So a container will cost me like around $80,000 right. for the full thing. And I basically have to prepay for it. Right. Um, sometimes months before I sell it. Right, right. Yeah, that that's a hard thing on your cash flow. And and how many, I mean, just in general terms, are you doing that a couple times a year? Or? Yeah, about every other month. Every other month, wow. And that's just for the olive oil. So right. then for the vinegars, um, you know, they come from Spain. Mm-hmm. They're, they don't move quite as quickly as the, the olive, olive oil. oil. So mm-hmm. a huge part of, like, the family farms that we partner with is like the trust because you know the longer terms they can give me the better mm-hmm. right <laughs> but they're also small farmers too and they have sure. the same cash flow constraints that i do mm-hmm. so that's another dimension to your brands is how um you know your source verified to a specific farm mm-hmm. that's fantastic for the consumer yeah and I guess probably similar to um, Tara's way, mm-hmm. the way we scale is not by going to bigger farms, mm-hmm. it's by going to more small farms. Mm-hmm. But um, we found ways to, it can be more complicated because a lot of the small farms, you know, they don't have the same systems in place Sure. Um, for producing and shipping. Mm-hmm. So I work closely with um, the trade offices, so like the Consulate of Chile mm-hmm. and the Consulate of Spain to kind of um, walk a lot of these farmers through the process of exporting. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's been really helpful, too. So just like utilizing resources and learning mm-hmm. what resources are available has helped a lot with the importing process. Right. I think it's exciting because I feel like um, startup companies and um young companies are particularly um, intimidated, I'll say, by international business, right? And, uh, you know, we, that was another dimension with Tara's Way. We were exporting right away. We had a big export business. And I think, I think people don't think about the opportunity. They think, well, I'm too little. Like, that doesn't, it's not relevant to me when, in fact, it could be super relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of you know, kind of easy underserved areas like mm-hmm. Canada and Mexico mm-hmm. that are like dying for, you know, 
U.S. brands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the consumers are well aware of like brands they can't get in Canada and they, you know, drive over to Buffalo <laughs> to go shopping. Yeah, right. Um, right. So, yeah, it, it can potentially be a really big market mm-hmm. and a much easier to market to enter than the United States. Right. Ironically, because I do think right now retail is getting really tough, mm-hmm. right? The category, pretty much every category is kind of like olive oil, right? There are just so many brands. So saturated. Mm-hmm. And that's why, um, you know, learning that basically there's the staple brands that, that mm-hmm. the category managers will keep on the shelf. And then there's the small brands that they'll keep rotating because they can get slotting fees and then they can get a ton of promotion, um, promotional dollars, mm-hmm. and then they just switch it out, you know, right. with the, the next one that's coming in. And I don't want to play that game. Right. Which is why the only way I'll, I'll enter the retail category is through the bulk section. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can be part of trans, kind of a transformation that way, which is super exciting. Yeah, it's much more motivating to change consumer behavior mm-hmm. and kind of answer consumer needs, making it easier for people to you know produce less waste mm-hmm. absolutely what other lessons you mentioned there are things that happened that you know now with the benefit of of hindsight you can look and say boy i wish i hadn't done that yeah um you know once I hit maybe 400 or 500,000 in sales, mm-hmm. I started to feel comfortable hiring consultants and stuff like that to help. Mm-hmm. Now, I do warn, like, be careful and make sure you vet people really well. But I probably could have saved, like, tens of thousands of dollars if I had just hired, like, graphic designers who were, you know, not just me making my... <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I showed mm-hmm. you the presentation... Um, just before we got on the podcast, which was done by a really talented graphic designer. Mm -hmm. And then I have this amazing project manager for each of the the projects that we run, whether it's um, the whole dispenser design, where we have an industrial design uh, company, a graphic design company, um, and then an advertising company. And if you just get to the, the point where you can hire this stuff out and learning when to do that instead mm. of trying to doing to do everything yourself. Um, you know, I, I wish I had learned that earlier. The other thing I feel like everybody probably says on this podcast is to grow my business to, um, you know, the next phase of growing my business will cost at least a million dollars. And that's something that, that, you know, after doing the math with you, mm-hmm. I learned. Right. Um, and so many businesses start out being like, I can I can grow off of cash flow mm-hmm. alone. And you've even said it yourself, you can do that if you want to be a small mm-hmm. brand. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to know like how big do you want to be and what's it gonna take to get there and a million dollars is probably it if you want to even think about being national. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you um, about that. And and it's it, it's interesting how long sometimes it takes for people to get their heads around that, right? Yeah. We're kind of all in denial, especially in the Midwest, because we're kind of cheap, right? Yeah. Like, it, it's funny, uh, on the West Coast, I, I see people, like, raising, in the beginning, they're like, well, I'm going to raise $4 million. I'm like, really? Right. You know? And, and I don't even know how I if somebody wrote them a check for four million how they would deploy 
it, you know, right. it's, it's kind of impossible at some point. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what's, um, other than the dispensers, what's on the horizon for, for you and your company? Yeah, so now, um, you know, the next few steps are uh, doing trials with uh, grocery chains um, really perfecting the promotion. Um, and then as you know, once we expand into at least three medium-sized grocery chains, we'll probably do a revamp of the design of the dispenser. Mm, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, to work with a, a big industrial design firm, mm-hmm. it's a minimum of like $30,000. Sure. And so what I'm trying to do right now is um, do all the, the research on my own dime. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I do have, I have taken out debt, um, mm-hmm. as I have, you know, done, uh, raised capital in the form of debt, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, in order to get the highest valuation, I have to reduce my risks as mm-hmm. much as possible. So if I can show investors, look, this is what's worked for us, but now we need to be thinking much bigger mm-hmm. and we need to be working with like much bigger players because branding and marketing are so so important right so important and you're trying to you're trying to bring brand into a category where it didn't exist before right exactly. so you don't even really have a template for how what it would look like right yeah yeah so that's the next few steps mm-hmm. and that's another thing that i i wish i'd known before that like you know i used to think if you have a great product, it'll sell itself. Mm-hmm. Like word of mouth, whatever. But that's just not true. Right. <laughs> it's right. Just completely not true. And you need to spend a lot of money on branding and marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's you know go through and going through people's performance and their you know forecasting for the future and their plan financial plan for the future and they have like two thousand dollars for marketing right Right. it's a year i'm like no that's not gonna work (laughs) right farms are are the worst about that usually they're like 500 a year you know it's what does that even cover i know i know that's a sad thing so um, really figuring out how you do that and being target about it is what it sounds like you're kind of in that phase at the moment. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, we've covered a huge amount of ground. Have we missed anything that you can think of? Um, I guess the other thing that I think is important to talk about a little bit is um, raising capital as a female. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, and I just, I like to bring this up because I think the conversation, it's important to like open it up, um, especially after the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not like all black and white, like, you know, all male investors are terrible. But I think that we as women need to maybe express things that we're not comfortable with so that these men know you know here's where the line is Mm -hmm. because a lot of a lot of um even friends that i've talked to are like you know after hearing all these stories i i want to know you know maybe have i ever done something that Mm. was inappropriate um and i think you know um some of the things that i've dealt with is you know married men trying to like kiss me in a cab on the ride Mm -hmm. home 
um, or uh, a lot of men just saying inappropriate things like about the way you look or Mm -hmm. after you know a glass of wine at dinner that's supposed to be a a professional dinner Mm -hmm. you know saying um, things that kind of insinuate like you you could have this investment if you mm-hmm. if you really want it mm-hmm. um, and so I think that's something that we hopefully with the, the next few generations we won't have anymore but um, you know if you are a male investor out there listening and you you want to be as respectful as possible um, you know it's never a good idea to to talk about the way a woman looks in mm-hmm. um, a professional setting or uh, even try any like you know moves with someone that you are potentially investing in mm-hmm. because uh, whether you believe it or not they're going to think that they have to do that mm-hmm. to get an investment yeah so it's such an inter- this whole thing about gender and investment is a really interesting topic cuz there I think there are other dimensions to it. Like there's all the, I'll call it behavioral stuff that you surface that is uncomfortable and gets in the way of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also just a dimension. Um, when I was raising money for Tara's Way, um, I, and we're in the Midwest here, which is pretty conservative about money, right? Uh, when I was pitching, I um there was only one woman I pitched to who was who was investing on her own behalf. All the other women were wives there with their husbands who were making the decision about it, right? So um there there's a thing in the in the investment world right now where there are women who have significant net worth. And what is interesting is that they are not as likely to invest it directly as men are. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's because you know the people who tend to invest are people who, who in in young companies are people who ran companies like they didn't make their money by in, you know inheriting it or being a neuroscientist or something. So um, maybe that's part of it. But I think there's a big gender there's an attitude toward risk thing. We yeah. don't mentor women to become investors, mm-hmm. right? There's a whole. There's a whole cultural thing around that that is an issue. Right. Because if you have more women in the room as investors, then that behavior doesn't happen. The uncomfortable behavior doesn't, right? right? Because it's a broader culture that is there. Um, I, I also think that there is a presumption, I think, sometimes that, that you know, women don't know, know anything about money. Right. And I hear that a lot from women entrepreneurs, where they 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 get, um, you know, they're having conversations with potential investors who are presuming that they don't know what they're talking about about money. And it's interesting because my advice about that is you got to know a lot about money, and you got to be able to talk about it, and you got to be, you know, two x times as good at doing that as the guys are who mm-hmm. are raising money because you have to demonstrate your credibility in the area where the presumption is you don't have any skills right I wish we were in a world that was different but we're but we're not right mm-hmm. no and and you're right we do have to like you know um, in order to change those stereotypes mm-hmm. we ourselves have to um, you know 
show investors that like, look, women do know their numbers. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're doing is so amazing because you have mentored a lot of women, including myself, Mm -hmm. who may have been a little bit more intimidated of the financial side and taught us how important it is to, you know, go into a room and know exactly what you're talking about. Right. And it actually isn't that hard, right? I mean, it is a thing. It's a thing you have to learn, but you have to learn a lot of things to have a business, yeah. right? It's just another area. And um, what ha- what can happen for you when you build that um, that knowledge base is pretty is pretty incredible, like because um, because I think people will. I still believe that in general, people are good, men and women. We show up good mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. world. We want to be good and do the right thing. And I think if we give people um, the right information and the right behavior on our part, saying that, you know, hey, that makes me feel uncomfortable, but also, no, I'm actually a real business person and I'm pitching a business model and I'm going to make you a lot of money if you if you invest in my company. Right. This isn't about anything else. That's what it's about. Then people go, oh, okay. 100%. That's what it's about. Yeah. I completely agree. Totally. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think you're right. I think people, um, you know, hopefully they are inherently good. And, mm-hmm. and. I don't think a lot of these men that I've encountered necessarily um, are trying to like take advantage, mm-hmm. but um, there's also like a cultural change that's happening, and a lot mm-hmm. of these men are much older; they're in their sixties, and it was never um, inappropriate to like you know talk in a certain way or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think if if you know we start if we're if we're proving ourselves and we're you know just being open and upfront I think we can see a lot of change really quickly yeah I do too and I think um more and more what I love about food entrepreneurship in in tech you don't see as many women Mm -hmm. founders right as you do in food because food you know that's a whole nother issue about gender right why is it that girls don't do science and math in high school right and then they don't start tech companies right Right. um so that's a whole other conversation but food isn't like that and we we do see more um women entrepreneurs and um I think cultivating that too, like cultivating their ability. One of the things that has been disappointing to me is, is I think, and this is a super generalization, but women tend to be not as ambitious in their vision for their company as men do, mm-hmm. right? The risk-taking thing, I don't know if it's an attitude toward risk or I, I'm not sure what it is, but but in general terms, I would say, um, among the startup women, startup folks, they tend to be more conservative about and about their ambition. Yeah, yeah. I I definitely see that too, and and this goes to you know like one pressure that that men have that women don't is there's still this social idea that men are supposed to you know make the money and women mm-hmm. take care of the family. And I think um, I you know I grew up in a very egalitarian household. Um, actually you know, maybe even more like kind of matriarchal mm-hmm. um, where my mom made a lot of money. Right. Um, and my dad was home a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that you're right that a lot of women don't have in, in some ways the same amount of pressure that men do mm-hmm. where, um, 
you know, and I think sometimes it does make us less ambitious. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, then you you go, oh my God, I have to raise money. And then you go to a bank and there isn't a single woman, ta- you're not talking to a woman loan officer, or you're talking to investors and it's all men and it's not women. And, you know, it just kind of reinforces things that, um, that like, huh, do I really belong here? Right. You know? And, and totally. I, you know, and I tell people absolutely you belong there and you can do it. Um, I think, I think, as I said, the answer for a lot of women is a lot, a lot of preparation, Mm -hmm. like really get your act together about it. I, I I was, um, we, I do these virtual office hours. I had somebody call from California who really had, I mean, and she's in the Bay Area, right, where people do stupid things with money, investing, right? Like stupid money. Mm -hmm. And she was kind of having a hard time raising money. And I looked at her deck and her stuff, and she was very brand focused in how she talked about things. And it was not irrelevant, because you're doing a food brand, you should talk about a brand. But but my feedback was, you're a woman, you're raising money, you gotta talk about money. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't be talking about brand all the time yep. because that's, the presumption will be that you get the brand stuff. Mm-hmm. We need, what the, 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 the other side of the presumption is that you don't get the money stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's something that you and I have worked on a lot. And you know, it takes a long time and it's hard as an entrepreneur sometimes to like, you just have to dedicate time to it. I, you know, you're running a warehouse, a food production, um, shipping out orders, managing customers. But like, if you want to raise money, that's a job in and of itself, and you have to set time aside to go through your numbers and really get them clean. Yeah, totally. It's a it's a whole thing in and of itself, and it's really. I mean, sometimes. Um, um, you get investors who understand that and say, "No, we're gonna we're gonna you know fully fund your raise, but we don't want you thinking about money for the next two years. We want you running this company for the next two years because they get that it's so distracting to be raising money that you can't work on the company." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but um, that is one thing that's helped me a lot. I actually have a productivity planner. <laughs> nice, and the um, you know there's quotes on it, and there's one from. Tim Ferriss that says, um, very often the thing you're avoiding the most is the thing you need to do the most. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of put that at the top of, and you have like five tasks in a day. And um, you put that at the very, very top and how much time you want to spend on it. But like one thing I encourage entrepreneurs to do is like think about one thing you're really avoiding getting organic certified getting you know b corp certified um those are things that are just like annoying to fill out all the paperwork for and just put time in your calendar without any distractions of when you're going to work on that and you notice that once you dig into your spreadsheets the the financial models are not as complicated or even um as daunting or take as much time as you think they're going to yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right about it. It's so funny that you bring up a planner like that because 
I think planners, like paper planners, are coming back, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> My millennial staff were always making fun of me because I, w- I was like, I've always had one, right? Mm-hmm. And and I was like, no, I can't organize things and I can't see my I can't see a week. I, it's not enough to just have this thing on my phone. So I love to hear that you're doing this because I I do believe they're having a comeback. There's something so satisfying of like checking a box (laughs) physically, you know, or crossing off a task physically. I mean, whiteboards, like we have, we're getting a whiteboard at home so we can be like, okay, we did the laundry and meal prepped and like, nice. there's there's something about it. Uh, humans are completionists. Yeah, isn't and, that funny? Yeah. Definitely entrepreneurs. We're very task oriented. Yeah. And you have kids at home, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have one um, son who's about to turn one years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so you you had a baby in the middle of all this too. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's it, that's why it was great to see my mom do it mm-hmm. um, because you. You can see all the benefits and then and be realistic with the expectations. Like I also listen to a lot of female entrepreneurs that talk about balancing the two. Mm-hmm. Or not even just entrepreneurs, but business women. Sure. Who are like, you know, the, you might not see your kid's first step. And you have to just accept that. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of the world. As long as you're there for really important things, like when your kids need someone to talk to and, and stuff like that. And it's also easier as an entrepreneur where my business is right now that if, you know, my son's sick and needs to stay home, I can take that time off Mm -hmm. um, and work from home a few days here and there. But um, yeah, finding that balance is really important. And then also marrying someone who, or or not just, (laughs) sorry, marrying, but whether you have a partner or, Mm -hmm. or whatever, who is, you know, um, believes in a true like household partnership mm-hmm. that you know my husband is super helpful and very very supportive um, and I don't feel like all of the burden of raising a child is on me and that makes a huge difference yeah no absolutely absolutely and when I started what well, I was still doing Tara's Way at the time, and I started dating somebody, the first thing he did was download an app that was called How to Date an Entrepreneur. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Isn't that great? I'm going to share that with my husband. Yeah, Yeah, because it has all this stuff in there like, yeah, they're going to be busy all the time and bad things always happen while you're on vacation yeah. and don't take it personally it doesn't mean they don't love you it's just that they have to spend time on this stuff right and, and attitude toward risk and a whole bunch of things yeah. it was very funny it's, it's so the true. app about dating an entrepreneur how great is that yeah it, does it it still exist right now oh yeah all right i think well i don't know i i, I would assume so yeah i'm gonna I'm yeah gonna download it yeah exactly because <laughs> it's probably like how to be married to an entrepreneur is probably maybe another one but yeah yeah his thing was how to date an entrepreneur yeah yeah what that were was some great. other cool lessons from it well attitude toward risk was one um because and then the i think a lot of it got to this issue of people feeling like the like your partner feels like your business is more important than they are right right and and that how do you it's not always possible when you're running a business and have that level of responsibility to say, no, I, I, I will just not deal with that right now, right? right? You don't actually have that option a lot, so. Yeah, yeah. And going on, there's, 
like there's no true vacation like you have to keep doing work when you're on vacation you might be in a different country doing work but you still have to be doing work mm-hmm. and you know like yeah we had we went to India this year mm-hmm. um, for a wedding and we had just a bunch of catastrophes at the warehouse while we were there of course and so you right. know like it's 12 hour difference I'm on the phone in the middle of the night while right. my husband's trying to sleep and it's just part of life right Right. We never really turn off, and mm. it can be frustrating for family members, husband, kids, you know, partners. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's an interesting thing to live with people like us. Um, we're also just kind of relentless. We're optimistic about things all the time. Mm. We're relentlessly determined to get stuff done. You know, there's sort of an energy around us because of that that can be kind of overwhelming to people who yeah. don't understand it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this has been fantastic. What a great visit we've had. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was such a blast. It's super fun to have you. Can't wait to see what happens to you and your company over the next year, and we'll stay in touch. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Tara. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.